65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon. Nothing more Wisconsin than having all four seasons in a 24-hour period, huh? I think they make uh, memes about that. You know, Kristen, my five-year-old looked at me last night, and he puts his hands on his hips, and he says, Daddy, I just wish the weather would make up its mind about what it wants to be right now. <laughs> and us, too. All of us, too. We were vibing. We were vibing in that moment. That is the voice of my guest co-host today, Dusty Weiss, who is the president of the podcast production agency, PodCamp Media, and former radio news journalist. So you're back behind doing some live radio. When's the last time you did live radio? Oh, I think it was probably with you, honestly, but I don't get to do it nearly as much as I'd like. It's one of those things. I was just talking with Jessica Van Egren out in the hall here. She's going to be our guest later this hour. It's one of those things that gets in your blood. And even when you get away for it for a long time, like I have, my last stop in radio was at WIOD in Miami, Florida, which is a wonderful news town. Just wonderful the- news town, wonderful weather. Just Probably not four seasons in a day. Oh, I hated it. I hated oh, everything really? about my. <laughs> Don't get me started on Miami. No, it was not. It was not my kind of town. Wonderful people. Okay. I got to work with, but it turns out I need the four seasons to mm. make me whole. But that was boy, that was like eleven or twelve years ago. Oh, now. Wow. So it's it's been a minute. It's good to be back in a place uh, where the smell of burnt coffee and cortisol is thick in the air. And we can all just tell great stories and uh, and and do journalism that matters. Absolutely. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited about the guests that you you actually. This is the existing relationship for you. But at 1:30, we're going to talk to Dan Wegmuller, who about the decline of family dairy farms across Wisconsin. Because not only is he part of the decline, it was as recent as this past weekend that he sold his herd. It's not an easy thing for a dairy farmer to go through with because. You and I can look at each other and you can be like, oh, I'm a radio show host. Oh, I'm a podcaster. And that's like our career. But when you're a farmer, that's who you are yeah. as a person. And so Especially for generations of doing Fourth it. generation, Dan is. And he's going to tell us all about the journey, how they arrived at the point where they felt like they needed to, uh, to sell the herd. Uh, but he's also going to tell us about the pivot that they're making. Um, what I think could really be the future of agriculture and our identity as Wisconsinites as well. And uh, all just really, really important stuff about uh, about something that's critical to Wisconsin's economy and our identity. And then coming up next, after the next break, we're going to be talking to Journal Sentinel reporter Jessica, Jessica Van Egren about her two-part story about the preventable death of baby Amelina, who died just 38 hours after being born, and it was a very treatable condition. And what the story exposes, I think, is that, and everyone should be aware of, is the fact that there are limitations in Wisconsin and what Wisconsin families have when it comes to medical malpractice lawsuits. Not because they don't have a strong case, but because the medical malpractice caps in Wisconsin are so low that law firms won't take these cases. And the heart, the story that she wrote is heartbreaking for the parents, but it's even more alarming as far as what you may not know as a Wisconsin resident, if something goes terribly wrong, that you, on top of your grief, also now have no recourse with the hospitals. I mean, it was shocking to me, again, as a dad, because when you're in that moment and, and bringing a new child into the world, I don't have to tell you, you've been yeah. through it recently, 
Um, you feel like you're at your most vulnerable uh, just because you're so far out of your comfort zone. But you also, you expect that the medical professionals around you are going to provide you with the best possible level of care uh, to bring your new little person into the world. And this is very clearly a case where that didn't happen. And Jessica's reporting certainly shines a light on that. Um, but also why that can happen and how that can happen and, and what can be done about it, I think, is where the conversation needs to go next. And so that's certainly something I'm looking forward to discussing as well. That's coming up next. And then we have a short show today because the Brewers are on at 2. But coming up next, Jessica Van Egren. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dusty Weiss, my co-host for today. And our next guest published a two-part story earlier this month that reported on the death of a baby girl just 30 hours after she was born, her parents' inability to get answers from the hospital, and what their story exposes about Wisconsin medical malpractice caps. Jessica Van Egren is a health reporter with the Journal Sentinel. Thanks for joining us in person, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So I want to be able to get... There's so much to this story, and we mm-hmm. don't have a lot of time with you, so I want to be able to get as much in as we can. So let's just start. Can you summarize the story with baby um, Ameliana Ameliana, um, and her parents and what happened with them when she was born? Sure. So, yeah, that's a tough task. <laughs> just sum, sum it up quickly. But um, long story short, I think um, they arrived at Columbia St. Mary's on September 18th. Um, the mom, Karen, was considered high risk because of her age um, and because she had she's uh, um, anemic. Um, so, I mean, right away, I think that more flags should have been raised. But essentially, the baby was born. Um, she had poop before, um, you know, she was born. Which, so that, until yeah. I was pregnant, I didn't realize that happens, that babies sometimes yeah. poop for the first time it's, when they're still in the womb. It is not like a, a very, ab- I mean... It, it happens. It's not a super abnormal thing. So anyways, she pooped sometime in utero, in utero or in the birthing channel. Um, she came out. She still had the meconium in her lungs. Uh, she developed a secondary condition, um, but both together caused respiratory issues. She was having difficulty breathing, transferred to the NICU, um, put you know on a ventilator, given certain things. An attorney that reviewed the case didn't think that standards of care were met. So some things that could have been done for her weren't done for her. Um, and then uh, what, whatever it was, 30 hours later, um, she was pronounced dead in her mother's arms. There were essentially things that could have been done to intervene that uh, a doctor uh, and, and a lawyer who reviewed the case mm-hmm. and is expert in these things think should have been done uh, but weren't. Uh, exactly. There were certain procedures that they could have done. And then at some point when things started to go off the rails, they think that baby Emiliana should have been transferred to uh, Children's Hospital, which is better equipped with more equipment and specialized equipment in the NICU to Correct. take care of her. Yep. Do we know why those steps weren't taken? We don't. Um and I guess that's part of the story that remains to be seen. And we did have all the, the medical records. So, I mean, everything that's in the story is from the medical records and from experts that I feel fortunate that I was able to track down that agreed to look at the records and then comment 
on what they felt was wrong. But you're right. I mean, when a, when a child has respiratory issues, there's like, you know, a standard of care. There's like a package of things that can be done to help them. And some of these things were done. She was put on a ventilator. She was given, a, um, I don't know if drug's the right word, but surfactant. It helps loosen up things in her lungs. Um, she was put on a feeding tube. These are all good things. These are all things that should happen, and they did happen. But I think where the the attorney and his expert and the other experts that reviewed the records where they say that the hospital failed in this standard of care were two key parts of that standard, which were the inhaled nitric oxide and high flow oscillatory ventilation. So that's a different type of ventilation than just a standard vent- ventilation. It um, it's easier on a newborn's lungs. It kind of shakes them the way the nurses I talked to described it. If you're holding the child and it's on this <clears throat> sort of ventilation, it's it's just like a constant shaking. Hmm. But for some reason, that shaking is gentler on them. Um, and that's why the attorney in that one quote in the story, he said, it's like they're practicing medicine from the 1980s over there because. You know, because I kept driving in on how easy is this stuff to get? Like, is this really that standard? Are we talking about something that is exceptional? That's only at children's. That's only at children's. And everyone was like, no, like this, if you have it, why wouldn't you use it right off the bat? Like, why weren't you just put on this immediately? And and those are the questions that I sent to the hospital obviously and never got a response to but you know his quote derives from that and then of course that sounds so inflammatory that really like the 1980s so i would take that you know that's why i really wanted to drive back and get other experts besides the attorney's experts so we're left in a position now where we have to theorize why this child didn't get the level of care to which she should have been entitled and and i think we'll drive down on that a little bit harder here but first you mentioned that the hospital was not responsive to your Mm -hmm. concerns as a former journalist myself i can say uh been there um done that they cited hipaa um Mm -hmm. as a reason for not responding to your requests do you find that very often hospitals when they don't want to be held accountable just say oh it's hipaa we can't talk because hipaa um, I think that it's a first go-to response. It's legitimate. It's people's health care records. And, you know, if I'm a reporter and I want to write about any of this, you have to get the family to either sign over the records to you or just hand them to you, you know, share them with you. But the workaround that came up in this story that our attorney for the newspaper recommended was for me to ask the hospital for a different form which would allow them to talk about the family situation. And that had to be signed by the parents. Which you did get. Correct. And they still didn't answer your questions. Correct. Well, and they part of the story is also they didn't answer the questions that the family and the parents had themselves. But we have to take a break really quickly. Okay. When we come back, I want to get to what I think is everyone should be aware of, which is the malpractice medical malpractice caps and what recourse the family does not have. And so our guest is Jessica Van Egren, who is a health reporter for Journal Sentinel. He is Dusty Weiss. I am Kristen Bry, and this is Spanning the State.
Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bride. He is Dusty Weiss, and we are talking to Jessica Van Egren, who is a health reporter with the Journal Sentinel, about her two-part piece published earlier this month about a baby who was born with a treatable condition and still died thirty about 30 hours after being born, and what that exposed around medical malpractice in Wisconsin and what recourse families have when something like this happens in hospitals. And so as far as the unfortunate tragedy died, then mm-hmm. the baby died. There was not a lot of response Mm-mm. from the hospital to the parents. Correct. And so they started to try to find a legal route for mm-hmm. recourse, right? Yep. So um, th- they've been denied, I think, seven or eight times. And I think part of that was like the dribbling out of medical records from the hospital. You know, if you call an attorney with 19 pages of medical records, chances are not much is going to happen in addition to the caps. So, so that's I mean, what I want to talk about. Is, the caps is the problem. Did you it, know about the caps before you found this story? I think maybe I had heard it during my days covering the Capitol, but it, not not really. Um, actually, my coworker did a huge piece series on the caps in 2014, and I cited that in my article. And essentially, what has happened is the injured patients' compensation fund has grown to over a billion dollars, and so the fund has continued to grow and the number of mal- medical malpractice cases has continued to decrease. But so let's explain why. Yeah. So the um, I think what's important to understand is that if you are if you die as a result of medical malpractice in the state of Wisconsin, you're essentially not going to find it's going to be extremely difficult to find an attorney. The first and if you're an adult who passes or who dies as a result of medical malpractice the cap is $350,000 if you're if the if a child under 18 dies as a result of medical malpractice it's half a million so these are caps that were instituted by the state legislature uh, a while ago right i think so yeah. i'm not quite sure on the dates but these have been long standing so if you take the rundown that the attorney in my i quote an attorney from baltimore who is the one that found there was medical ne- negligence found the standards of care were not met but then his firm found out about the medical malpractice cap in wisconsin because maryland does not have such a cap and that's when they were like you have a case, your baby is dead, but no one is ever going to take this case because to bring it to trial requires experts, $80,000 on the get-go, and then whatever money you get is essentially split between the law firm and the parents. And while it might sound like a lot to get $200,000 as an attorney from a case, that's not a lot. So, you know, take that example and put it to if you're an adult, who who dies as the result of medical malpractice? You're working with a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap, which is even less. So, which is even less, and so even more so. So that's when we talk about the the fund that's grown, the the cases that have dropped. Yes, it's not because it's not because care fund, is, it's not necessarily because sourced. care is getting better. It's yeah. because. No one will take these cases. This fund is something that doctors pay into as a part of their medical malpractice insurance. It is, exactly. And if the fund isn't paying out to malpractice cases, it just gets bigger and bigger. Yes. And I want to read you, um, I won't tell you who sent me this email after the story published, but it is an attorney in Wisconsin. And it speaks to exactly what you just said. So he said, those of us approaching retirement are told that if you keep your withdrawals to 4%, you will only ever, you know, tap the gains on your savings. 
So if you're just, you know, if you're just pulling 4% off the savings of that account, you're going to be fine. So if you apply that to the $1 billion in the fund, the fund could reliably disperse $4 million annually to patients. And but stay we're not even doing that. and stay afloat. And the the last cap I think is crucial to talk about is the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap. So that is for non economic damages. So like pain and suffering, loss of companionship. That's the one that has been challenged in court as unconstitutional. So economic damages in the state can be as high as anything. So if I survive but I'm like paralyzed, I can no longer work. That's an economic damage that can a jury can award anything for that. But if you but if you if you die, it's a different story. Right. We're talking it, about this because of the tragedy endured by one Milwaukee family and the loss mm-hmm. of their child. And I, I certainly think that um, when these medical malpractice caps were passed, it was passed under the auspices of we need these caps in place to keep medical costs from rising out of control. Mm-hmm. We're in a position where lawyers won't take these medical malpractice cases because there's not enough money in it for them. Correct. And at the end of the day, it seems like all of these problems, the, the problems endured by this family, uh, the problems of not being able to get anybody to take their case, all source back to the fact that money is involved and mm-hmm. so with the time that we have left here i just want to ask is what can we do about it other than taking money out of the health care system uh well <laughs> can you answer that in one minute <laughs> I, I don't know but i can try um i think we can all do better i think what this story highlights is that there are flaws on every level here, that's why the story was split in two. There was flaws at the point of care that impacted this child's life, and there was flaws in the in the um, in the legal system that is preventing them from getting any justice. And so, you know, the only thing that could change the legal system is laws. The only thing that can change the system is an attorney taking the case and arguably. Um, fighting and saying they're unconstitutional. Jessica Van Egren is a health reporter is a health reporter with the Journal Sentinel. Setting limited news time is one thirty. ABC News is next. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, along with Dusty Weiss, my guest co-host today. And a reminder that the Brewers are coming up at 2 p.m., so we have a short show, but still a packed show. Still a fun show. We have a lot to talk about. We have a lot still. to talk about. Absolutely. So my favorite t-shirt, I, I'm a big fan of funny t-shirts. My favorite t-shirt that I think I got from Urban Outfitters when I was a kid was of a dairy farm. And it said, Wisconsin. Come smell our derriere. Oh, that's a classic. That's <laughs> and, awesome. You know, it's because we are we are America's Dairyland. It's on all of our license plates, and yet dairy in Wisconsin is changing. I mean, it's a part of our identity, right? Uh, one of my best buddies' wives has the old Wisconsin license plate, the dairy farm 
landscape tattooed on her forearm, um, which I still think is one of the best tattoos that I've ever seen. That's a pretty good one. But a relationship with dairy is what's changing in this state. Because 50 years ago, there were 48,000 dairy farms in the state of Wisconsin. And today, that number is below 6,000. That's 46,000 dairy farms that have just disappeared. And both of my grandparents on my dad's side, they're dairy kids, right? Uh, my grandpa lived on a dairy farm. Uh, my grandma's dad worked on a dairy farm. But the generational shift that's happened since then means that fewer of us in Wisconsin have a connection to where our food comes from. And I think that's kind of sad. Um, there was a survey that was done in 2020 that found nearly a quarter of small dairy operations in the state planned to close up shop over the next five years. And unfortunately, one of those operations belonged to Dan Wegmuller, a farmer from Monroe, who just sold off his herd this past weekend. So this uh, is fresh. This is very fresh. And if you don't know farmers, it's not just your career, it's your identity is being a farmer. And so we wanted to talk about what these changes mean for Wisconsin's identity and what folks like Dan are trying to do about it. So Dan, thank you for joining us. Um, a farm auction is always tough. I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. How are you holding up, man? Yeah, you know what? Thanks for asking, Dusty. I appreciate that a lot. By the way, beautiful setup for this segment. I mean, you could not have hit the nail on the head more perfectly as to not only what we're what we're evolving into, but also how we're changing as an industry and also as a family farm. We're fourth generation. Uh, we just sold the cows on Saturday, so just a few days ago. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this is about as raw as it gets. I milked my last cow yesterday evening, and it very much felt like the end of an era, not only for myself, but, um, you know, the identity of the the identity of the farm is going to change moving forward, too. Because I haven't spent a lot of time on dairy farms. I am a Madison kid, and I'm just more of a city kid. But the time that I have, what I understand is, even if you have a big herd, you have a relationship with each of those cows. It's not just kind of nameless, faceless cows. It's like you know each of them. Yeah, Saturday's auction, uh, we moved 60 head of cattle, ranging in age from milking cows all the way down to what we would call breeding age cattle, so about the 15-month age, something like that. And every single one of them, we knew them by name. We knew their bloodlines. We knew their families. As I was signing registration papers over to the new, buy the new owners, to the buyers, I mean, I recognize names that not only go back to my childhood, but honestly go back to the dairy herd and the cow families that my dad started in the 1970s when he came home from college. So we're talking about a, a two-generation, a multi-generational spread, a multi-generational legacy. So and, what? And, and this might sound a little bit cheesy, pardon the pun, but these cows are not just a part of your family. They're a part of the community, too. I mean, there's a parade every year where those cows get led through downtown Monroe. There's a, there's a cow parade? There's a cow parade. It's yeah, a, every two years. Parade. Actually, even years. So this year is a cheese days year, and we start, that is a tradition that my dad started in the early 1990s. We lead off this, like, multi-hour parade with, uh, with cows leading the parade. And as somebody that had a chance to travel after high school, I spent some time in Australia, spent some time in Switzerland. That's a very old-world tradition when the farmers would bring their cows down from the mountains and their summer grazing down to their winter housing in the valleys, they would parade. They to this day walk their dairy cows right through the towns of Switzerland, towns of Europe, and traffic comes to a standstill. People, of course, in this day and age, people are taking pictures and recording it. It's a very beautiful thing, but it's also a very real thing. I think there's a lot to be said to that because it connects. It forces people to connect with not only how food is produced, but also the people and the the culture that provides that.
So what was the tipping point for your family to come to this decision? Yeah, this, so this was not made easily. I mean, this, this was a big decision. And a lot of families, as Dusty pointed out, a lot of families are going through this transition. It's not an easy thing. It's part of your identity. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in just taking a step back and sort of disconnecting, but also like looking at signs. For me, like, personally, it was time for me to step aside for the last several years, we were trying to bring somebody in to take over the existing herd. It just, it just wasn't the right scenario. It wasn't the right circumstance. Um, and so it was sometime in January. I woke up one morning. It was not dramatic. It was nothing like there was no major catalyst that forced this decision to happen. But it just occurred to me like it's either now or never. Um, economically, we were losing money. I mean, we um, when I came home from college in 2008, our break-even point was very low. The economics of dairy farming has changed to the point that, I mean, we, we were down almost $100,000 in 2023 for a small dairy. So it's very much economic and also, you know, very much looking forward to some changes that are on the horizon. When we come back, I want to talk more about the economics of how this works as far as what we think about family farms versus big dairy and big industrial farms. Our guest is Dan Wegmuller and our, my guest co-host is Dusty Weiss. This is Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, along with Dusty Weiss, and we are talking to family farmer from Monroe, Dan Wegmuller, who unfortunately sold his herd over the weekend. But the, the farm is not closing. The farm is not closing doors. We're going to get to that before we let you go today. But we wanted to still talk about the economics that most family farmers are dealing with right now. Right, because, again, I feel like Wisconsin is losing a part of its heritage when we lose our dairy farms. And if you look at the numbers Wisconsin has lost 87% of the dairy farms that it had over the last 50 years. Just last year, 7.5% of the dairy farms in Wisconsin closed their doors. And I think that as city kids, we don't necessarily understand what's forcing these really hard economic decisions that people have to make. But, Dan, as a small dairy farmer, you're essentially talking about a job where you work seven days a week with no vacation days, no weekends, you're working long hours, and you don't have any health insurance provided as a result of that. And you're doing all of this work, and in a lot of cases, you're only making twenty-five or $30,000 a year. It's a really hard way to eke out a living. And what also gets lost in this is the fact that the farm alone costs a ton of money. You know, acreage sells for as much as $10,000 an acre right now. So you're talking about um, if you've got 100 acres, uh, we're talking about a million dollars just in the acreage on the farm, not to mention the equipment. Uh, a typical farm could be valued at $2.5 million. And if you're only making $25,000 a year off that, that's a 1% return on your capital investment. Not that farming is a capital investment, but... Tell me a little bit, I mean, just, just as a small dairy farmer, a fourth-generation farmer, how frustrating is it trying to eke out a living looking at those kinds of numbers? Yeah, so you hit on two points, and I can condense both of those down very, very simply because you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the statistics, if you look at the economics, you can't wrap your head around it. You're like, why would anybody go into this job that is clearly economic suicide? But it wasn't always like that. Um, the only reason that small dairies are going out of business is because they're easy to liquidate. Hmm. What's happening in the United States right now, 
I mean, we could talk we could talk for hours about this, but if we condense it down to its core point, what's happening to agriculture in the United States right now is exactly what happened in the Soviet Union leading up to World War II when the when farms were collectivized. Now we're calling it we're packaging packaging it slightly different. We're calling it something different. What do we call it? We're calling it uh, bigger is better. We're ta- calling it industrialization. We're t- there's a lot of outside money that is influencing agriculture and the and the the, fo- of- the foreign ownership of farmland is a com- completely different topic that I think deserves its own day to dive into. That was, that was something I was unaware of until recently. Have have me back. Like I'm okay. trying to sell okay. myself here too. <laughs> no, I mean I think. If we condense it down, what is happening in agriculture in the United States right now is identical to what happened in the Soviet Union leading up to World War II, the collectivization of farms. So right, you can see how that turned out. In Wisconsin, is has steady. Gone, has 1. Gone 2 down. million cows is the same amount that we had 10 years ago, even though we have so many fewer farms. The cows are being sold off to larger operations. Absolutely. So the second point that you talked about that I want to hit on is why on earth would you do this? So... What I can tell you is somebody who grew up, I mean, fourth generation on a dairy farm. I mean, it's not about the money. Like, at the end of the day, you have to have something to show for it. But it's not about the money so much as, I mean, if you look at the time that you put into raising your children, if you look at the time that you put into something that you're passionate about, something that identifies you as a person, I mean, that's what we're losing as an industry. We're losing, like, that personal touch of it. When an artist sits down and creates anything, a masterpiece of any sort, whatever whatever their um whatever their pursuit happens to be. You're not doing it to clock time and get paid for it solely. You're doing it because it's it's an item of self-expression. That's what's going away in farming. When we come back, I want to touch on what you are doing next because you are pivoting. The, the You're not totally selling the farm. Uh, there's going to be agro-tourism, which is a term that we is new to me. So we will learn more about that when we come back. This is Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dusty Weiss, my co-host for the day, and Dan Wegmuller, who is a Monroe farmer who has sold the herd but not sold the farm. So what is the pivot? What are you guys doing next? Yeah, so we found our niche in, I would say, 2017. We saw the writing on the wall with the ag crisis. We saw what, what we've been living in agriculture for the last several years. I saw that in 2017 and recognized that as a small farm, we needed to pivot and we needed to make a change. And, um, you know, the thing that I tell every single group that comes through the farm is welcome to Wisconsin, America's dairy land, the dairy state, where it's literally easier for you to get raw fish sushi than it is for you to go to a farm and get milk. Hmm. And so we recognize that there's a deficit of knowledge between how food is produced versus how people perceive how food is produced. Uh, We opened an Airbnb short term farm stay rental on the farm with some unique opportunities that we had. Started hosting groups in 2018, literally at a time when we were facing bankruptcy and thought we were going to exit the industry out of force. Um, and now here we are. Here we are seven years later. Uh, we've got, we are booked on any given 12 month calendar year. We're booked about 75% of the time. And in the tourism and hospitality industry, you understand how important this is. 65% of our bookings are repeat guests. So we have families coming back from Chicago, a lot of love from Milwaukee, a lot of love from Madison, but also international groups as well. We've hosted from all over the world. Um, and so it's, it's all based on a really fundamental point where, you know, there, there is a separation between farming, how food is produced, and how people perceive it. And, you know, the joke that I let off with in this segment, you know, welcome to Wisconsin, where it's easier to get sushi than it is to go to a farm and get milk. Yeah, that's a joke, but there's a lot of underlying truth behind that. We opened this discussion talking about how Wisconsin is in danger of losing its connection to the farm. 
when people come from the city and stay on your farm in Monroe, is that the new path forward for Wisconsin's identity as the dairy state? Definitely there's an element of it. And the thing I want to underscore with that is we don't we don't put on a performance. I mean, we don't hide anything. If we have a veterinarian call, uh, we invite people out to witness it. But I, mm. I do think more connection is essential. Well, Dan, thank you so much for making the trip out here. I know that wasn't a we're, it was wonderful having you here in, here in person. I feel like we could talk about this for a lot, many more shows, many different topics. But Dusty, thank you so much to you for being here today. This has been a great show. Fast, Absolute pleasure. Fast and yeah. furious, but. I'm excited for a Brewers game. Thank Looking forward to doing it again and go Brew Crew, huh? Kristen, Dusty, thank you so much for having me on. All right. Well, coming up tomorrow on Spanning the State, Dan Schaefer will be here. And we're going to talk about who spent the most money on lobbying in Wisconsin last year and whether and what it got them. Does lobbying work? And then a Wisconsin-born NBA star turns six years old tomorrow. Do you know who it is? And do you know why he's turning six? This is Spanning the State. Brewers baseball is next.